Thank you to Wildcare and Wildlife Acoustics for sponsoring the Bat Chat podcast. Can you hear that? We can. Wildlife Acoustics creates the world's leading bat acoustic monitoring tools, designed to help scientists make impactful discoveries for our biologically diverse planet, turning this into this. Visit wildlifeacoustics.com to learn more. Wildcare are committed to supporting the ecology industry and are specialists in supplying a large range of monitoring, conservation and habitat management products, as well as equipment hire and service and repair. With a large range of products coupled with friendly and expert help and advice, Wildcare is a favourite supplier for ecologists nationwide. Go to wildcare.co.uk to see the full range and quote BatChat at the checkout for 10% off all bat detectors and bat boxes. Hello, you're listening to Bat Chat, the podcast from the Bat Conservation Trust, where we take you out into the field to discover the world of bat conservation. Welcome back, folks. This podcast is for anyone with a fascination in the amazing nocturnal mammals that fill our skies at night. I'm Steve Rowe. Professionally, I'm an ecologist, and in my spare time, I'm a trustee for the Bat Conservation Trust. If you're listening to this episode on the day of its release, hello. I'm currently on a day-long road trip to interview our first guest of Series 6. Yes, we are already recording the next series for you guys, so check out my social media for any sneak peeks of where I am today, and drop us a comment to let us know what you thought about this episode. A few weeks back, I got the chance to speak with Dr. Debbie Saunders, who resides in Canberra, Australia. Debbie created the startup Wildlife Drones as a result of being frustrated by the limitations of manual radio tracking. The company is now working with a range of endangered species across Australia and the United States, but as you'll hear, a European product is currently being developed. And so, Debbie, thank you very much for joining us on Batchat today. Um, what's it like over in Canberra? I've never been to Australia, so what's 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 Canberra like as a city for a start? Um, well, I think we, we won the award for the most livable city in the world recently, <laughs> which is, um, that's pretty cool that I, I live in that kind of place. Um, I, I really like it in terms of um, we're able to move around on bike paths and, and you know, I, I can ride to work, catch the bus, what have you, um, every day. And I, I've got surrounded by natural areas and we have bats flying over <laughs> our house every night. So... <laughs> That's a good thing. Um, yeah, well, it's kind of like a grassy, open woodland um, environment here, and we're sort of in the the tablelands or mountains, and so we're not we're not on the coast, but we're not up in the Alps either. So we're sort of in between. Nice. Um, so, what's your background in um, conservation technology? Um, was you? I mean, we'll talk about the technology you developed in a minute, but which which came first? Was it the wildlife or the technology? Oh, definitely wildlife. Um, I've been fascinated by wildlife my whole life. Um, even when I was really young, I just, you know, koalas were the one thing that struck <laughs> me initially. And But not just that they're beautiful animals and cuddly, they look cuddly, um, but they're amazing features, you know, their adaptations to the Australian bush, as we call it, um, was what really captured my imagination. And I've always just done everything I can to be involved. I've done wildlife rehab from... Um, the minimum age I just dived in and um, did whatever I could I volunteered for research projects when I was at university um, but not just for one particular type of animal I'm, I'm really fascinated by all forms of wildlife um, and so when I was at university whenever I 
um, didn't know something about a particular group of animals, say frogs, for example, I was like, I just go find someone who's an expert and go, hey, can I come help? And they're like, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's been great. And, and bats were definitely a part of that. And um, I haven't ever really been um, personally worked on bat projects myself, but uh, through my business I now do work with with bat researchers um, across multiple countries, which is, is really cool. Um, and I have done a bit of bat handling and trapping. I did a course in bat handling and trapping um, at one point, which, which I loved. And we have done some trapping of birds that was sort of late in the afternoon and we ended up catching a bat <laughs> accidentally <laughs> in a mist net. So um, have, have done a bit of that. Yeah. And what's bat conservation like over in Australia? You know, what are the challenges? We were talking before, before we hit the record button about the two landscapes that we both live in. What are the challenges for you over there? Yeah, so I, I think there's there's a lot of similarities globally in, in terms of um, the understanding of bats and the appreciation of them in the landscape, um, simply because they're, they're out at night, so, you know, people aren't exposed to them necessarily and they get to appreciate them. Um, here in Australia, we have, um, you know, the megatropterum bats, the fruit bats, um, and they often cop a really bad name amongst orchardists and the like for raiding crops, what have you. Um, um, but I, the, the things that I see is is the promotion of them. You know, they're rain, they're pollinators. I mean, they they spread the seeds and they're pollinators, and you know, really important parts of the ecosystem. Um, so I think that's a message that that is being put out there. But um, I think here a lot of people do have an awareness of wildlife, um, and we do have wildlife in our backyards all the time. As long as you have some vegetation, you generally have a bit of wildlife that will come into it. So we're very fortunate in that way. Um, I think most people may not really understand that they're microbats, um, you know, anything about the smaller bats, um, or I've even heard anything about them, but I do see them circling around. Wherever I go, um, there's bats at night. Whenever I go camping or hiking, you know, there's always a bat to keep you company as long as it's not too cold, <laughs> of course. Um, and we've got you on to talk about a new radio tracking system that you've developed, which I'm really excited to hear about because it sounds like it's going to solve a lot of problems for us over here in the UK. Um, where did the frustration lie with the technology that most of us are used to, where you know you tune to one particular frequency and you've got to stick with that frequency to track your individual? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I guess similar to, to for bat researchers, I was at the time working on small migratory birds and um, we, my, my research, my PhD research and my employment before that was focused on trying to understand the movements and habitat use of this um, migratory bird. And we, we've learned a lot about where it goes in the wintering range, which was my, my task, and worked with the community right across eastern Australia to do volunteer surveys to help put the pieces of the puzzle together. But what really was unknown was how do they get from A to B? Um, when do they get from to B from A? And, um, you know, what what is it that they need along the way? Or do they just migrate and they don't stop? Do they need stepping stones? But we knew nothing about the movements of this bird. And it's it was endangered when I started working on it and it, then it progressed to critically endangered. Um, and, and it's actually severely at risk of going extinct before my kids finish school, which mm. is really frightening. 
Um, so I really wanted to shed light on on their movements and because it's a major part of their annual life cycle and we knew nothing about it. Um, that, that species is particularly challenging to tag, unfortunately, <laughs> was one of the other challenges. Um, they have a very sharp beak and so <laughs> very adept at destroying things, um, but also they fatten up for migration and so just attaching a tag with a harness, for example, was absolutely problematic and it was too risky because the um, they can get entangled in the vegetation or in the nesting hollow that they're accessing. And so we weren't able to attach a tag in the way that you hear of a lot of tags being attached on migratory birds. So, um, yeah, and some colleagues of mine had tagged swift parrots, which is the bird I'm talking about, and... Um, yeah, gone to a lot of trouble to get the ethics, catch the birds, put the tags on them, release them to never see them again. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> you can't justify putting a tag on a critically endangered species that you're pretty confident you're never going to see again and not get any value back mm. for that population. Yeah. So um, before we could even apply to do any tagging, we had to find a better way to find them once we release them again. And uh, this was a very long time ago that the idea came about. It was... Um, in 2008, I think, yeah. um, had that idea, uh, working with another researcher who was working on lions, in fact, in Africa at the time, and we were both lamenting how we needed a better tracking solution. Um, and anyway, uh, drones sort of came up, I guess, in that conversation, and I'm like, oh, imagine being able to create a high point wherever you want it. Um, like that would be just a game changer in itself. And then, you know, being able to manoeuvre across landscapes that you can't easily get across on the ground because of tracks and gates and what have you, um, much like the bird does. And so that was where the idea sort of spawned from. And, and then it took years to find anybody to try and support a grant um, and what have you. And then eventually we did get some grant money ran a research project to see if it was even possible because nobody had ever done it before on a drone. Mm. And there weren't many drones around. DJI really wasn't a thing then. Uh, and so it really it was hard to find people who knew drones. Um, and I wanted someone who knew drones already so we could focus on the radio telemetry side of things um, and get that really good. So we did a project and um, proved it was possible. So that was exciting. But... What we also proved was there were many, many flaws in it as well. <laughs> the first prototype that we developed, we, we couldn't track swift parrots because of the attachment issues. Um, and so we just we did tag some local resident birds, though. So we were able to demonstrate on, on free-ranging animals that, that this was something that could work. Hmm. But there were many, many limitations. Um, and then the, the money ran out on that. Um, and so... Um, we, we got a lot of promotion, though, because it was the world first. And people go, I want one of those too. And I'm like, oh, okay. I was just kind of doing it for myself. But that's really <laughs> cool. It's other people actually feel the same pain as what I was feeling. So I then went off into um, a bit of a journey, I guess, from academia um, and from working in government through to our local innovation network. 
where I went to them and said, look, I've got this prototype. People seem to want it. I need to validate, you know, do people actually want it? And I need to develop a new one because this one is not going to work. But I knew what all the flaws were and I knew what I really wanted. As an ecologist, what do, what would I want and what did I want? Um, and so I just had to then go find engineers and, and others to work with me for free for a couple of years sure. <laughs> while we validated the idea and all the rest of it. Um and and just see that there is really the demand there, and, and there was. So we just continued on that on that journey, and now um, yeah, we have a, a product that is is really easy to use and has immense capability compared to the handheld receiver. And um, we have clients across Australia, um, in New Zealand, in Vietnam, and also in the US who are using it now. So it's. It's pretty amazing for me as a conservation ecologist working on one species for most of my career to then be able to help people in different places of the world working on a real wide range of species. When you said um, you started with the idea back in 2008, I was thinking, I'm fairly sure drones had hardly been ever heard of back then, so it must have been quite a challenge to find someone who knew what they were doing with them. There were only, yeah, yeah, there were only two that I found sure. <laughs> um, and and one was there was a robotics lab at the University of Sydney and they do all sorts of really amazing robotics stuff in the field um, and there was another government um, organization as well but they really were completely reliant on students and I'm just like no I just want a professional to work on it mm. and get it done we've only got it was a three-year project but you know it took that full three years to really get to something that we could work with yeah so um yeah. <laughs> and the first drone was, it had a maximum flight time of eight minutes and could hardly carry anything. <laughs> um, so the world has certainly changed in that regard. So how does this new technology work? You know, how is it possible that you can track 40 tags at once rather than just one? What have you done to, to change that technology? Yeah, so we have a, um, a radio receiver system that is essentially an onboard computer um, and the, this, a similar type of directional VHF antenna. Um, so that gets mounted on the drone and there is a, a real-time communication system between uh, the radio receiver and a base station laptop. And so we, when when people purchase our system, we, we send them a, the whole kit. So it just kind of works straight out of the box, um, comes in a Pelican case. So there's a laptop and the payload and um, it attaches to an off-the-shelf drone. So we don't make a drone specifically. This just clips onto other ones. Um, and it you really just like clip it on. Um, and there's, at the moment, there's no real integration. We are building a more integrated model mm. at the moment, which is smaller and lighter and gives you even more flight time. Um, but it just clips onto the drone. And when you open up the user interface, it's like a big map, essentially, um, with some controls down the left-hand side. And you just push start tracking. And once you push start tracking, the radio receiver is listening all of the time. And so then you launch the drone and the first thing we always recommend is just fly the drone as far as you can. If you don't know where your target animal is, which is most likely the case for bats, um, fly the drone as far as you can in the area where you think they might be. And the whole time it's in the air, um, it's actually displaying in real time all four, up to 40 signals across the frequency chart. So there's a there's a frequency chart underneath the map. So it's a bit of a brain shift in that at the moment you're out there with your arm in the air listening to the beep, 
beep, <laughs> you know, and following that around. We actually um, don't hear anything. So the computer does the listening and it maps the signals on a chart. Right. So you can see how strong the signal is in this chart. So as you fly the drone around, if you can picture like a breadcrumb trail behind the behind the drone, mm-hmm. those little breadcrumbs appear on the map. And as soon as it picks up a signal, it lights up green. Um, and so you can immediately see that it's picking up something. Um, you can interact with that. So you can click on it and you have a pop-up. And it will tell you of all of the up to 40 animals that you have input the frequencies for, which ones are you detecting at that point? And you will, and the output from that is, is like a CSV file. So mm-hmm. you, um, it's logging continuously while also mapping it in real time. So you can get this immediate picture of where the activity is if if the bats are moving. So you can do this at night or during the day. It really depends on the pilot's ability to fly and their authorization. Um, but some people have used it for. Yeah, looking at where the bats are foraging um, and just seeing how far they're moving from perhaps a known roost site. But then there's the other half of the people who've like caught them while they're out foraging and want to know where they're roosting. So it can be used for for either of those purposes. But, um, yeah, it, it's all in real time. And so it enables you to make decisions on the ground straight away if you do happen to need to go and observe that or find where that location is on the ground. So with traditional technologies, we're used to getting a signal and then moving for a few hundred metres to then triangulate to try and pinpoint exactly where the bat is. Is that negated because the drone's moving around all the time, so the triangulation is working all the time, I guess? Is that how that, in terms of pinpointing exactly where stuff is? Yeah, so there's two different ways of using it, Um, it, and it's all just how you fly. You don't have to do anything different on the base station. It kind of knows when you're doing one or the other. So if you're just doing this, what we call the searching mode, where you're just flying around and you're trying to map out where where generally you're getting signals for things. So then you can go and um, hone in more if you want to. If they're, if they're foraging, obviously they're not in one location, so you can't triangulate because it's yeah. not one spot. <laughs> um, but you can certainly build up a, a, you know, I guess a bit of a heat map, if you like, of where are the signals the strongest over time for a particular um, set of bats. Um, but if you were looking for roosting sites, then yes, the triangulation would be where it, where that comes into play as well. Um, and you're right. So the drone basically does the walking for you. So um, if you were trying to say you would do that searching to figure out where are you actually getting a good signal because there's no you can't start triangulating until you've actually got a good signal. So once you know where you're getting that good signal, they then just launch the drone and slowly rotate it and it will listen for all of those signals in every direction. Yeah. And based on the signal strength received, and, and it can be up to 40, and if you have multiple animals, you'll just instantly get multiple arrows popping up on the map saying this one's this way, this one's that way, whatever, and or they might just all be in the one roost and they'll all be pointing <laughs> in the same place. <laughs> but you'll get an initial bearing, and then based on that information, you then manoeuvre the drone around so you don't, unlike manual tracking where you're actually honing in on the animal you you want to actually maneuver the drone not towards not in the direction of the animal but perpendicular to that so that you get the best intersecting angles for your triangulation um, and you can just simply build that up by moving the drone around on different angles and um, we we actually put an ellipse on the map as well so which is an error an error confidence and 
to shrink the error, you manoeuvre the drone to be perpendicular to the long side of that ellipse to bring that error in. So there's lots of sort of guidance, I guess, on, you know, like once you get this, you can do this and and to optimise your data. Um, And it depends whether you're looking for roosts or whether you're actually trying to map out the area that they're foraging over. That's clever stuff. So how how large do these drones have to be to, to lift your antenna then? So um, the drones are a medium-sized drone. So unfortunately, the smaller drones, there's a, there's a couple of issues. One, it doesn't um, yeah, lift the payload. Um, so the, well, the payload is the radio receiver and the antenna. Um, and that at the moment weighs about one kilo. Okay. Um, and so that will be just the smaller drones won't be able to have any decent flight time with that the other issue is and this is the biggest issue really is um, noise generated by the drone and um, we were very fortunate that the first drone we picked was great for radio tracking and it still is we still use it Um, but they don't make that one anymore and um, subsequent models have been changed the way they manufacture them and they're very noisy in the VHF band and so there's there's specific models of drones that are suitable for radio tracking Um, so there is a a DJI drone um, which is the Matrice 210 and then there's also an American made drone called Free Fly Systems Astro Um, both of those are have suitable noise floors so that you can listen for those tiny little tags that you put on bats (laughs) Sorry, I don't know if I answered the size question, but the, the weight of these drones is around six or seven kilos, the medium size sort of drone. And what sort of flight time do you get out of those then? It's around 20 to 25 minutes. Okay, quite good um, then. Um, but then you can also, um, you know, pause the tracking. So if you do a flight and you've just detected something, you can pause tracking on the interface, bring the drone back, change the batteries and launch again and then continue tracking. So you can actually track for quite a long time um, in a single session. Um, you're not sort of necessarily limited to the that particular drone flight. And eventually, you know, we, we aim to get it onto a, a vertical takeoff and land drone. So that's like a fixed wing drone with some propellers. So it launches vertically but then flies horizontally. Um, and the capability in that space is growing and um, that they can stay up in the air for hours. Wow. And so, well, you know, maybe one or two hours at the moment. Um, and so that's something that in the future we, we certainly would like to do. That I think a lot of our clients would love that. There's obviously... Um, you know, flight regulations that need to allow long range beyond visual line of sight operations and the like. But those regulations, they are advancing. And, and we have a lot of open space here in Australia. So <laughs> I think we do kind of lead in, in, in that way sometimes because we have areas where there's literally nobody. <laughs> and so it's okay to fly drones further in those places. So um, that, that's an exciting prospect, I think, for any of these species that are really mobile and move across big landscapes. Yeah. And you've done stuff with bats in both the US and Australia. Do you want to talk about, I guess, the most exciting project that you did with those? Yeah. Oh, well, look, none of them are mine, but um, I think there's... 
there's been um, yeah, a couple of like environmental consultants who do um, impact assessment work. Um, some of them are studying bats on migration and um, and they actually, this is in the US, they were, they're using piloted aircraft because they need to actually go over huge distances. So we worked with them to develop an adapter for the piloted aircraft. So they um, had to fly around in circles for every single bat because they had to listen for one and listen for the next. As you can imagine the expense <laughs> yeah. of the aeroplane. Um, and now they can just listen to all of them at the same time. So it's just a, you know, a game changer mm. for them. Um, here in Australia, we, um, we we helped out with a project by the New South Wales government and they were actually GPS tracking the bats um, with a little radio receiver attached as well. And the GPS is so tiny, it doesn't transmit. So they needed to find the roost site and recapture the bats to get the data. And I, I believe it might have been one of the first projects in the world to achieve that. Hmm. Um, so that was really exciting that we were there to help um, track those bats to the roost and actually so they could get that data and look at the, the foraging range. So that was um incredibly exciting and I think there's a lot of there's a lot of work um, looking at disease as well so the white nose syndrome in the US is having a massive impact um, and so uh, California Fish and Wildlife Service also using the system for for that purpose in terms of monitoring bat populations and, and disease control and management so um, that for me is is really exciting that it can be used for for so many different use cases. And um, I guess another one is where the the roosting sites are being are threatened with development. And so um, the, the roost is going to be destroyed and yet they know nothing about where the bats are going and what alternatives they have. And so tracking bats in that regard um, was, was really helpful and being able to search along sea caves, um, which previously was just too hard to do. And now they can just like take fly the drone out over the cliff and fly it along <laughs> um so that was pretty amazing i mean i wasn't there unfortunately i would have loved to have been there to see that but um they sent back some photos for us <laughs> on, on their work that they did on the sea caves as well yeah i know when researchers and conservationists listen to this they're going to be really excited and the question that's going to be in everyone's mind is what's you know what's the cost of this have you got a rough cost at the moment i know you say you're developing it for um, a European market at the moment? Have you got a rough cost at the moment? Yeah, so um, you are looking, it is an investment, but I think it's an investment in the saving of the people's time and effort and it very quickly pays for itself. Um, so in terms of like there's, I guess there's the drone purchase and then there's the payload purchase as well. Um, and so you look, you are looking at like a professional grade sensors and drone and so the drone both of those are roughly around twenty five thousand um, dollars so at, at the full kit you're looking maybe 40 to fifty thousand mm. um, yeah so yeah that that's the kind of price point that you're looking at although I think um, yeah if this is going out later maybe I don't know if having the price in there in the discussion is going to be that helpful because it might not be relevant at that point yeah yeah um, yeah. But like you say, even though it's a even though it's an investment, I guess you're saving people's time in terms of man hours on the ground. I guess it is, and I think um, that time it's it's interesting, right? So it depends on on what how you go about it, and you know if you have 
people who volunteer and are really happy to go out and do it manually, then, you know, you can still do that and and that's fine. Um, we, we just, you know, there's um, – it depends on you know, what it's costing you at the moment as to how much of a value proposition that is. The other side of it is um, a lot of our clients say we just have we just can't even get any data, hmm. um, and so it's it's not actually even just about the the time that people are spending on the ground, but actually getting something so that you have something to work with. And if you can't ever find them again, if you tag them, release them, and never find them again, I mean just the, the man now is going into the ethics to do that, to come out with nothing is heartbreaking. Yeah. I, I've been there and done that. So I think, um, yeah, and, you know, we can we can help people with that as well. Like if people are um, wanting to do this type of work, some people have access to um, like drone pilots uh, or they might, you know, be able to work together on um, we have other like NGOs that go in together and, and purchase a system and use it across multiple projects hmm. and the like. Um, and so there are those things, you know, available. And we, we do sometimes also provide information to people who are applying for grants on, you know, what are some of the benefits of that and actually weighing up the pros and the cons. And, and it really depends on the context, you know, as where people are working. Are they in a dense rainforest where launching a drone is problematic? You know, we, we don't want, you know, it has, to be, it has to be fit for purpose and it may be that not every application is fit, but for a lot of them and for bats, um, they're hard, right? They're, you know, I work on small birds, but bats are harder again. Um, they're smaller. But now, you know, we're also tracking insects now. So we're tracking um, giant hornets in, in the US and it's a similar size tag as to what you put on a bat. And so, um, you know, the capability is there and you can actually collect more data and get more insights on things that were not previously possible. So um, it's it's pretty exciting in that regard. And then just final question then. So I guess, I mean, obviously you guys are using it. How do you see the use of drones in, in wildlife conservation moving forward? Do you think it's just going to increase as this sort of technology becomes available? Absolutely. Like I think the thing is once once you've you know taken that step of getting a pilot's license, buying a drone, like there is a commitment <laughs> that's required. It's not just a quick fix kind of thing. Um, and you need to develop your skills in, you know, the best way of flying and optimizing data collection, etc. Much like any research technique, the more you do it, the better you get at it. Um, and but once you take to the skies, like for me, I mean I I'd never flown a drone. I'd never flown anything before <laughs> I started on this journey. Um, and But it got to a point with the research project, everyone else did the flying or what have you, and I was just there, like, advising on what I wanted to see happen. Um, but then I realised that, you know, I actually need to see what it takes to actually do this myself. I can't expect other people to um, if, if I haven't been through it. And so then I went and got my licence and then I became a commercial pilot and now I employ pilots and have a business. <laughs> and I, like, I never imagined this when I used to, you know, go bird watching is my job. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think um, when I first did take to the skies, just having that different perspective on the world there's a whole new world of data out there that we've never collected as well. And 
applications for all different types of species, changes in habitat over time, um, monitoring of all sorts of environmental factors from the air, um, whether it be invasive species impacts or um, in a habitat changes over time. The, the potential is immense and it's, it's really captivating. And mm. it's also, I think, a really important engagement tool for the community. Um, I think a lot of people are appreciative now of drones for good applications. Um, there are a lot of good things. You always hear of the horror stories out there. Um, but as it gets used more and more, there's a lot more work going into the ethics of using drones. Um, and our application is probably one of the most, well, it is one of the most ethical applications in that we actually don't want to follow an animal or get close to an animal. We want to track it from a distance and we can because we're listening, whereas most other drone applications are visual and it requires you to be overhead or nearby to that animal in order to capture any sort of information. So um, from an ethical point of view, it's actually less invasive um, to have to be using a drone than it is sometimes to be doing it using more traditional techniques. And like you say, if you're uh, able to get more data reliably, then the justification of, of attaching a tag and doing that invasive behaviour in the first place is is even more worthwhile, isn't it? So yeah, that's great. I know that lots yeah, of people. Listen, I know that lots of people listening to this will be really excited to hear about this. So thank you very much for coming on the show, Dr. Debbie Saunders. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to getting our technology over to Europe and uh, Africa and other parts of the world um, where we haven't been able to deliver yet. But, um, yeah, keep your eyes peeled for later this year. <laughs> Brilliant. Great stuff. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you to Debbie for that insight. We've put a link in the show notes to the Wildlife Drones website. So if you'd like to find out more, check out the link. We'll be back in two weeks' time with someone who created a product in the 80s which changed the world of bat conservation forever. Catch you then. Now, lots of you have seen me in branded t-shirts and hoodies with the Batchat logo on, and you've all been asking me when they'll be available. Well, we're thrilled to let you know that a whole range of Batchat clothing and tote bags is now available for you on our T-Mail store. The link's in the show notes. Whether you're a long-time supporter or a new member of the Batchat family, we can't wait for you to share your photos of you wearing our merch on social media. Be sure to tag the Bat Conservation Trust in your posts. If you're listening to Batchat on Google Podcasts, we wanted to let you know that Google have announced they plan to discontinue their app later this year, so we recommend making the switch to an alternative podcast app, and we've put some links in the show notes to alternative apps that you can follow Batchat on so that you don't miss any future episodes.